series of sermons on Ephesians 1 were, were put into book format about 30 years ago. And this was the title, and I think it's an excellent title for chapter 1 of Ephesians, God's Ultimate Purpose. God's Ultimate Purpose. What I think is very striking as we go through Ephesians 1 is the language which is, I've suggested here, outrageous, it's radical, it's breathtaking, it's extraordinary language. The sort of things that are hinted at in other parts of the Bible are drawn out by Paul in strong, definite, clear language. And we're so blessed to have this particular letter because of that. As an example, draw attention to three verses. The first is chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul says, For he, that's God, the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the creation of the world. We thought of that before, but it's... It's a stupendous thought, isn't it? It bears pondering. But every Christian can say, verse 4 is true of me. I've been chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. And he goes on. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Which is a glorious privilege. And verse 10 says, When the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. when you look at the chaotic world in which we live, what an extraordinary thought. There is coming a day when all things are going to be manifestly brought under the headship of Jesus Christ, when his rule will be absolute. We are praying about this city of Brighton and Hove. What would it be like to have the absolute manifest rule of Jesus Christ upon the city of Brighton and Hove. What an extraordinary transformation would happen this night if Jesus was to return and to bring his rule and reign over the Palace Pier, the I-360, the beaches, the lanes, out into the suburbs of Hollingdean and Hollingbury, into the schools, into the hospitals, into the police courts, into the family courts. What, a, what an extraordinary thing. And that's the anticipation. That's the promise. All things to be brought under his rule and reign. And what does this uh, do to us, it makes us a people of a past because we have been chosen before the foundation of the world 
a present because in our life history, we have received the adoption of sons and we have a future because we are in and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And his destiny is bound up with ours. More elegantly, our destiny is bound up with his. Where he is, we shall be. Where his rule and reign is, is where we shall experience his rule and reign. And he's taking us surely and certainly to that place. And it's important for us to be people of that broad perspective because we live in a very instant and present age. Yesterday's news is irrelevant. The future is uncertain. So we live in the bubble of the day. But God is working his ultimate purposes out year after year, century after century, generation after generation. It began with and is being worked out with and it will end with Jesus Christ. And he has always been at the center of God's purposes. And Christians are intimately involved in this storyline. There used to be a a bit of a fad a few years ago for having books that you could order that would have your name written in as the hero or the heroine. So you send away and you say, oh, I'd love to have uh, Tim put into the, this book. <laughs> I read it personally and give it to one of my <laughs> friends. And they would say, oh, it's all about Tim. It's all about Tim. In a very lovely sort of way. Our names are written in God's book of life. And his storyline is being worked out with an individuality. Reminded this morning, gathered one by one, name by name. Think and ponder the wonder of your past and future, all bound up with Christ. We are given permission to think in that way. As outrageous as it appears, even for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, this is still a most astonishing statement, astonishing even more so because we know that the failure of our lives, the weakness of our faith, how often we stumble and fall and fail, how unworthy we are to stand before God. And yet, Paul says, we are not to think in that fashion about these matters. We are to think rather of the glorious sufficiency and the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross that makes it inevitably so that every one of those whom he has called will be with him on that final day. And so we come to uh, verse 15. And Paul sees this as a natural response. The, the next verses 
a natural response for this reason, because of all that we've been talking about here, he wants to pray. He wants to turn this into a matter of prayer. And it's a prayer to God about fellow Christians. I, I was pondering whether to just linger at this point to draw your attention to the Trinitarian nature of this prayer. It's a prayer to God, the Father. It concerns the person of Jesus Christ and involves the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's delightful, really, how this doctrine of God being one, but God being three, uh, sort of leaks out of the pages of Scripture again and again. Uh, and we see it here done in the most natural manner. And it's something that, uh, as Christian people, we, we need to honor and respect and grow very used to so that we understand that the natural way that we should come to God is to come to him as a father. We come to him as a father because of and through the Lord Jesus Christ, but only by the help of the Holy Spirit. And we, we honor and respect the triune God by giving him uh, the appropriate place in our prayers appropriate respect so let, let me encourage you to be those who, who generally pray to the Father through the Son and in the Son's name but by the power of the Spirit it's a prayer to God about fellow Christians but it's also a surprising prayer and it's surprising because of what Paul thinks about other Christians and secondly, what Paul wants for other Christians. What do we think about other Christians? I don't want you to think now about the folk in Brazil and in India that I was praying for earlier because you don't know them. I want you to think about the Church of God at Calvary because you actually know that. And I want you just to think, what, what do you think about the other Christians in this church family? What's your... If a name comes to your head, if you hear about somebody, what, what sort of instinctively comes to you? Yeah. In my workplace, um, I'm a professional head of technology and uh, we've all got to produce a pen portrait of ourselves on one sheet of A4. It has a little mug photo that it just tells people who we are and then it tells them about what we're like so that they might be able to think rightly about us and to know who to go to if they've got problems. I think we get little pen portraits of one another. <laughs> we kind of sum people up in our heads. We think, oh yes. And all the experiences that we've had of those people all sort of coalesce into a little pen portrait, which we instinctively feel. And I'd like us tonight to be comparing that with what Paul thinks, in his words, about other Christians.
And what do we want for other Christians? Often, we are prompted to think about the very practical and problem-solving kinds of things. We're concerned about others' health and their work and their children and crises and a move and difficulties. And I'm sure Paul was also interested and concerned for that. But it's very absent in this prayer. (laughs) You might say, well, Paul was just having a bit of a purple patch at the time. And... uh, He was just thinking very nice thoughts about the Ephesians, who, by the way, he knew because he was in Ephesus for at least two years. So he did know a number of them face to face and by name. But actually, he does seem to have a very different agenda because what you read here in Ephesians, you will read in much the same sort of language to the Christians who are in Philippi and Colossae and Rome and in Corinth. So whether you're born in Asia or born in Greece or born in Rome or born in Brighton, Paul would have the same thing to say to you. He'd think about you in the same sort of way. And how Paul thinks about his fellow Christians is actually spelled out in these next eight verses. Now the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that he offers thanks to God for the Ephesians. I have not, verse 16, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's a great thought, isn't it? It's unqualified, it's repeated, it's unstoppable. It seems that when he gets news of them, he just turns that news into thanksgiving. And not only is he sort of thanking God for the work that he's doing in Ephesus, but he's thanking God for the people. He's thanking God for the Christians. He's giving thanks to God if he had the opportunity. If he had a church diary in front of him, a prayer diary, he would be going through that diary all 43 names of our current membership, and he would be giving thanks to God for each one. It's rather beautiful, and it's very healthy for our spiritual health individually and the spiritual health of the church. When Paul was very carefully uh, trying to help the Christians in Rome sort out their relationships between those who he calls weak and strong, those who had problems about eating certain meat and those who had no problems, and it was all turning into a little bit of an argument inside the church and a little bit of them and us and a little bit of cliqueiness. He writes this in Romans 15, verse 7, accept one another, and here's the rub. Accept one another, not just because it says so you should, you made that promise as a church member, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Uh, 
It's a profound thought, isn't it? He could have said, accept one another just as Christ has accepted them. But he says, now you know this personally, Christ has accepted you. If you have any sense of that, any knowledge of the grace of God in your own life, any understanding of that which you're so ashamed of and can't declare to other people, and yet to know that the Son of God was crucified on the cross, shed his blood to accept me, He says, if you have any knowledge of that acceptance that you have received, accept others. Accept others. It's a very high, high, high bar he's setting here, isn't it? And we need that high bar because there are all sorts of reasons why we will not accept one another. Why we will not be thankful for one another. And so Paul gives us the biggest possible motivation the incontrovertible motivation you can't argue with this if Christ has accepted me then I must accept other Christians others for whom Christ died And that brings praise to God. And so he's thankful. He's thankful for them. And I thought at the end of this meeting, wouldn't it be so great if in our time of uh, of prayer together, we made a point of thanking God for one another, not just in the round, in the generality, but by name, And maybe that would influence our daily praying as well. And what might happen as a result of that? And now he goes on to the point of request. Verse 17, I keep asking, I keep asking. And there are things that he asks God of about these Ephesians. And as I've pointed out already, not in this place he has nothing to say about daily circumstances, although these are normal people. This is an even more surprising thing than what I've just been saying. Because there isn't anything about their daily circumstances. But you could be quite sure that they had exactly the same sorts of daily circumstances that we have. Because they were normal human beings, each facing their own challenges and trials. And later on in this letter, he talks to husbands and wives. He talks to children. He talks to slaves. Almost all the churches of that era would have had a large proportion of people in the congregation who were slaves. He talks to masters. He talks about people who go to bed angry. 
He talks about people who have foolish talk in their lives. He talks about people who are rubbing shoulders with the world as you and I are and finding it very hard. Who are feeling sort of darkness coming upon them and they need to be light in the Lord. So that all sounds very familiar, I think. Now we have fancy titles for jobs now and the jobs that we do may be a little bit different to the jobs that they had. But essentially, they were human beings. They lived. They had fun. (laughs) They needed rest. They worked jolly hard. And they got old and crotchety and worn out. And families fell out with each other. People found it very hard and children disobeyed their parents. And that was all part of what went on and it's exactly the same now isn't it so to these very normal people and to us too this is what he prays Paul knows about all these situations but his requests are focused on their spiritual life and his ambition that they should grow in their spiritual life I think he's caught up in this idea of the unstoppable momentum of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And he's so concerned for them, in a pastoral way, of course. Don't get stuck in the side banks. Get into the mainstream of God's purpose. This is God's purpose for us, and every Christian should have the same ambition for him or herself and every fellow Christian. So here is Paul's really ambitious prayer. But before getting into the prayer, you might be thinking, is this really a prayer that every Christian can and should pray for every other Christian? My title tonight is Praying for One Another. And you might say, that's all very well. But this is in the Bible, and this is Paul. And Paul is an apostle. And Paul has a special gift, and he's a leader, and so forth. So one would expect him to pray in that sort of way for those who were not on the same sort of status as him. And wouldn't you love to have one of Paul's prayers? (laughs) But I think that idea is really undermined uh, for one reason, that Paul himself had such a spiritual need and such a spiritual ambition for himself. So please turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Philippians 3, 10 to 15. Where he writes about himself, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Please note verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. 
So here are some, some deep heart words from Paul about himself and saying how much he wants to run the race, to press on, to get to the goal, looking to the finish line. How he wants to share in the life of Jesus Christ. How he wants to know Christ in a way that he hasn't known him yet. And he says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. It's one of the tests of Christian maturity. Whether you're prepared to think about your Christian life in this kind of way. He's praying for others, the very thing that he prays for himself, and that he'd welcome prayer for from others. So as we go through the four things that Paul prays for them, this is a great thought. That hopefully those of us who are mature and those of us who are not mature as Christians, would all welcome this sort of prayer for ourselves. As much of all of us here tonight having issues we're facing in our lives and wanting prayer for this and that and so forth, I hope we would have a real space in our life, a real appetite when we come together we might say, I would love you to pray something like this for me. A prayer of spiritual ambition. A prayer all of us can pray for one another. So here we go. There are four things. Firstly, Paul says, I want to know that you might know him. Let me read this properly. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I don't think better is in the Greek, but I think it's, a, it's an inevitable consequence of what is being said here. If you're a Christian, you do know God. God is your Father. You have some relationship with him, just as a, a little baby has a relationship with its father. But Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would know him more. And we, we all understand when the word know is used, it, it isn't used in some sort of forensic sense of being able to, to sort of complete the jigsaw to, to sort of understand uh, something um, in, in a purely intellectual manner. It is a heart thing. Recognizing and appreciating God, his character and his ways. God the Father. We had a lovely day yesterday at Friston Forest, didn't we? And during that day... I was so blessed with three or four conversations with people as a result of which I came to the end of that day and I felt 
I just know those people better as a result of the experience of the conversation. It's just something uninterrupted, unhindered, the sort of thing that you don't get here on a Sunday morning because there's so much going on and so on. But just being able to have a conversation with someone which had a degree of honesty and depth and being able to say things that don't normally get to say. And as a result of which, I just felt I just know those people better. And I think it's a little bit like this. That we should have that experience of knowing God as our Father that makes it fair to say that we know him better now than when we first began. There's a lovely verse in, uh, uh, two verses in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. where the writer encourages the Lord's people, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say, he says, with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You could read this simply on the basis that if God has said something, then we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. But there's a richness about knowing God as our Father that puts us into the very privileged position of being able to see our Father's hand upon us personally, to see his ways in our lives, and to be able to give testimony as we sometimes do at the end of a year as we gather together in a circle on New Year's Eve And to say, God has been so good to me, I approved the truth of those words. I approved that never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I'm looking at you, dear Enid, because that's exactly the sort of thing that you would say. (laughs) It's true. And how precious and important it is that those of us who are able to give testimony to this, do give testimony to it. Not only in our prayers of thanksgiving to God, but to the family members. When one person is struggling in this area and really doubting whether God can provide, it is very encouraging to have someone who's been on the Christian road a long time saying, I don't say this glibly, I don't say this lightly, But God has never failed me. The Father has always looked after me. He's always provided. That's good. That's strong. That's what we need. Secondly, I'm going to come to this point. But we are to know his inheritance in the saints. How do we read this? I think David helpfully put two sides of the case. There are some who say, is this about our 
our inheritance, our inheritance to come, or is it about God's inheritance in us? And I, I think the language here speaks about God's inheritance in us. Know his inheritance in the saints. It is our privilege to be caught up in God's unchangeable purposes. He has invested in us. He will have glory in us. He will have praise. In fact, you might say that the whole book of Ephesians is something along this line, that Jesus Christ is made the head of all things for the purpose of the church so that in the church might be manifest to the watching world the riches of God's mercy and grace. And God will not be thwarted in that. That's his ambition. That's his purpose. That's his delight. This morning we were given in the closing verses of chapter 27 of Isaiah the picture of a harvest. A harvest. God is going to have a harvest. He's going to bring the sheaves in. Who is the harvest for? It's not for us. It's for him. It's for his glory and praise. And so it was said prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall see of the travail the work of his soul and be satisfied. He's going to be satisfied because everyone for whom he shed his blood will be with him on the final day. None will be missing. You remember that's what he prayed on the final, the last supper? That's what he prayed that none should fall, none should be None should be left out. Heavenly Father, that's my prayer. That where I am, they will be also. And it will be fulfilled, absolutely, 100%. And that's God's inheritance in the saints. And why does this encourage us? Why do we need to know this? Because it gives us an enormous sense of security. Because this is God's work and God's purpose. So it is that Paul writes at the, in, in his well-known verses at the end of chapter 8 of, of Romans, verses 37 to 39. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says that with, with utter confidence because God on oath has committed himself to this work. Thirdly, to know his power within us. What does it take to bring a man or woman out of their spiritual darkness into his marvelous light? We'll find out in chapter 2. But it's nothing but the power of God. As Paul is going to explain in such clear and robust language as we go through the rest of this letter. It is only the power of God that can bring us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. What does it take to bring a man or woman through this world, which is full of every kind of spiritual danger and difficulty in us and around us, orchestrated by the devil? It's nothing but the power of God can do that. Do you, do you realize just 
how true that is. The same power that raised you to life as a Christian is the power that needs to be exerted in your life to bring you through each day so that you do not fall, but one day are brought safely home. It's a constant need. And Paul makes likeness here between this power that raises us from our spiritual death and carries us through to, um, to what occurred in the instance of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very manifest way. That power is like, verse 19, the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, number one, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, two, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in this present age but also in the one to come. And then, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Paul is saying, do you, do you need to know how great this power of God is? It's like that. It raised Jesus from the dead. It took him into glory and set him at God's right hand. Every other authority and power is brought beneath him. And one day, one day, all things will be consummated and all thing, things are, are, are wonderfully bound up with his body, the church. And out of sequence, but because chronologically it feels the right place to go, there was something we missed earlier on which was I pray also, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Hope's a great word, isn't it? It's a, it's a lovely and a precious word. It's a looking forward word. It's a future expectation. I find it very difficult to put weight onto the things that concern the future life. I find that very hard to actually create much substance from the things which are promised to us. But there are some verses which we can identify with. And this came to mind as I was preparing. Isaiah 35 verse 10 which is, is repeated in 51 verse 11 where Isaiah prophetically says Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. We're just the people who are full of sorrow and sighing. <laughs> we have so much of that all about us. If it's not touching us personally or members of our family, it's out there in the world and it's just there, isn't it? But to think there is coming a time and a future expectation that belongs to the people of God where this will be history. Sorrow and sighing will fly away. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's like this enormous burden. It's going to fly away. (laughs) 
Doesn't that remind us of Revelation 21.4? Not just that sorrow and sighing will flee away, but here's another astonishing thing that Isaiah would not, not have realized at the time. God will wipe every tear from your eyes. He'll wipe every tear from your eyes. Here's some language which is much better than mine. As Pilgrim came near to the celestial city, he met with shining ones And the talk they had with him was about the glory of the place. And they told Christian and his companion that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, and the spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof, And when you have come there, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower regions upon the earth, to which sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passed away. You're going now to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and to the prophets, Men that God hath taken away from the evil to come, that are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. The men then asked, What must we do in this holy place? To whom it was answered, You must there receive the comfort of all your toil, and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king, by the way. In that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and visions of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desire to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone thither before you. And there you shall with joy receive even every one that follows into the holy place after you. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into an equipage fit to ride out with the king of glory. When he shall come with sound of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind, you shall come with him. And when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment, you shall sit by him. Yea, when he shall pass sentence upon all the workers of iniquity, let them be angels or men, you also shall have a voice in that judgment, because they were his and your enemies. Also, when he shall again return to the city, you shall go too with sound of trumpet and be ever with him. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are a people with a mysterious and wonderful past. 
We live in the present glory of the reign of Jesus Christ upon us. And one day we shall be with him and we shall see him as he is. Comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another. We're going to encourage each other as we sing our closing song, which we really, really do know. was a thought before we sing we need to pray for one another in this way so that we may be hurried on in the mainstream of God's purposes to the praise of his glorious grace come we that love the Lord with this with the chorus we're marching to Zion <laughs>